Welcome to the Self-Made Mind Podcast. We'll be bringing you real-life, honest conversations with some of the world's elite performers, from sporting athletes to millionaire CEOs and everyone in between. Success leaves clues. And it's now our mission to deliver these stories so you can start writing your own self-made script. Okay, welcome to episode number seven of the Self-Made Mind podcast. My name's Alex O'Keefe. And I'm Craig Billington. Yeah, nice one, Bill. Um, how are you getting on, big man? Uh, yeah, good, mate. Um, yeah. You know, it's been um, obviously still lockdown, so... Yeah. You know, we try to get by and, and, and do some yeah. work, but yeah. other than that, yeah, doing good. Good, good stuff, good stuff, mate. Um. Yeah, just a message to everyone who's who's listening. Just keep keep your chins up out there, and <laughs> hopefully, yeah. hopefully, we're going to see the see the brighter day soon. But uh, until then, keep listening to the podcast and uh, keep the positive vibes up. Um, yeah, this this week we've got uh, a very very special one. Um, is it's called Damien Hughes, um, also known as the Liquid Thinker. Yeah. Um, so he's uh, well, Professor Damien Hughes, uh, officially, um, is an international speaker, uh, best-selling author, um, and he's done a lot of work around um, organisational development and psychology in a in a sporting environment, but also just in a team environment. He works on changing the culture in in an organisation. That's his like speciality. Um, he's also a co-host of. Um, the High Performance Podcast with Jake Humphrey. They've spoke to some mad guests, um, spoke to Matthew McConaughey, Stephen Gerrard, Frank Lampard, Eddie Hearn, um, just some mad names. I think he, he actually speaks about the, the chat they had with Ma, um, Matthew McConaughey in, this, in our conversation that's just about to come up. Um, so, yeah, he's, you know, very high profile guy, but like, 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 a, like a lot of the guests being a very humble chap as well. Um, what, what did you think, Bill? Yeah, he's a, he's a really nice, really nice guy. And, and obviously he's met all these people that you'll think, uh, are mega stars, but he's just <laughs> normal, normal lad from just Manchester. So yeah, he's a really, really cool yeah. guy. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mate. Yeah. Um, it just says that, Again, just to just to let people know, some of his works, some of his works being praised by um, Sir Richard Branson, Muhammad Ali, um, Tiger Woods, and Sir Alex Ferguson, which he talks about in the chat as well. So, um, yeah, really excited to to share this one again. And um, like I say, just you know, if you are enjoying the chats, which we've, we've had some more great feedback again, which has been good. Um, you, you know. If, be appreciated if you could leave us a, a review on on Apple Podcasts and and get subscribed so you can keep catching them weekly episodes. Yeah. Um, we, we promise we're going to bring some some more great chats to you going forward. So, yeah, nice one. Let's let's do it, shall we, Bill? Yeah, let's get into it. Cool. Okay, guys, we're delighted to be welcomed by uh, Damien Hughes. Uh, big welcome to you, Damien. Thanks for having me, lads. I'm really grateful to be here, so I'm looking forward to chatting with you. Yeah, no problem. Obviously, yeah, I, I know you from from being a podcast uh, host, 
So now you, you know, the shoes on the other foot. You're you're on the guests now. So <laughs> have, have you been, have you done many podcasts as a guest, Damien? Or? Not many. No, I'd like to say I'm more on the other side of, um, of mm. with the high performance podcast. Uh, I'm lucky. I'm do, I do it with a uh, uh, Jay Comfrey, my mate, and. Uh, I feel like I know what I don't know, so I really admire. I really admire you because I feel like I've been learning. While I mean, Jake's an experienced broadcaster, so yeah. I feel like I've been sort of hanging on, trying to work out <laughs> how it works myself. So, <laughs> no, I admire you for what you're doing. Yeah, I think I think we're all in the same boat. You know, we ain't got any experience on this side of thing here. I think we're just, you know, well, I'll tell you a story. Maybe the first time I did it with Jake. Uh, yeah. So. If you, We'd been talking about this idea doing a podcast and said I'd love to do it. And uh, the first time we did it, we went down to Portsmouth to interview uh, Ben Ainsley, you know, the um, uh, uh, the the sailor or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we sat there and uh, have you ever had that experience? You know, standing at a train station and a train come and a train that's not stopping at the station comes flying through dead fast. Yeah. And like the platform shakes, doesn't it? And it sucks all the air out. I remember being sat there and Jake was like, are you ready? We're going to record in a minute. And I'm like, yeah, 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 fine. I'm feeling a bit nervous. Yeah. And press record. And it felt like that experience of a train whizzing through because he was just so good. He sort of switched on and he, his yeah. energy was brilliant and he was like, no, perfect. And he was really polished. I remember sat there thinking, I've got to try and jump on that train. <laughs> I'm not having a clue how to get on it. So sort of just sort of like jumping on and like closing my eyes and hoping for the best. So yeah, um, yeah. yeah no, I appreciate like when it's done well, I realise yeah. how far away I am from doing it well. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, just as because I do listen to the podcast as well, Damien. So oh, thank well, you. Someone, someone from an outside perspective, you've you've become a really good host as well, mate. So just. Oh well, that's very kind. Thank you. I, I am grateful. Yeah, it's it's mad because I I always you you just seem to like pluck these like nuggets of wisdom out of your own mind and just just throw it in. And I just think, you know what, Damien? Yeah, spot on there, pal. I always I always agree. With, I always agree with you. And you've just got like a kind of an endless uh, knowledge of wisdom coming out of that brain of yours. So, well, thank yeah. you. My mum would say I've got a big empty head. So there's a lot of space to fill. <laughs> Brilliant, pal. Um, yeah, just just before we you know learn a bit about your your personal story, then I just like yeah. like tell tell people how how it came about was us getting you on here because it's quite interesting. Our like I, said, I was just listening to one of your podcast episodes actually. I think it was the the Stephen Stephen Gerrard interview. Yeah, and um, I just connected with you on LinkedIn. And literally, I was looking at my phone and get a notification, and it's like Damien Hughes has sent you a message. And I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> but I'm listening to you in, in my earphones, and I get a message. Cool. Get a message through, you know, and you introduce yourself, and it's just like, you know, if, if I can help you in any way. And that's when we obviously, you know, tried to get you on on for as a guest. And I just thought, you know, that that humble, such a humble approach from myself. I just thought was uh, credit to you, really. Oh, well, thanks, mate. I mean, LinkedIn's an interesting one. I, I don't think I feel like, like I fully understand it. Do you know what I mean? Because I get people that will send you a message and I think I don't know them. Do you know what I mean? Like somebody will send you a message and 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 I don't know them, but they don't say, oh, this is why I've linked in with you or this is... So, like, if I, if I get time, I always just say, hey, nice to meet you. My name's Damien. Because 
Yeah. I'm not sure why you've linked in, and if I can help you, let me know. <laughs> I, I, so I'm not sure if that's the rules of how you're supposed to engage on there, but I always I, I, think... Yeah, just, I'm lost a bit as well, to be honest. I, I, I signed up and I went, I don't understand this. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't <laughs> but I mean, I'm getting to an age of my life where there's an awful lot I don't understand. And I think, but like, I don't understand social media these days. I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. Yeah. Uh, so many different things. So I think just be yourself and be polite and respectful yeah. and uh, like that. You know, yeah. if I can send you a message and say nice to meet you, thanks for linking up. Yeah. Well, don't don't change that approach, mate. On on you know, from my behalf, that's I think that's a great way just to connect with people and mm. and yeah. So that's good. Cheers. Thank um, you. Yeah, so obviously we're we're very interested in, you know, the reason why we're doing this sort of podcast is is to to get stories from people like yourself and any any knowledge you can you know portray to our listeners would be just brilliant. Well, why is that? So just from my interest, like, because yeah. like, I appreciate it takes time, it takes effort, you know, yeah. that you guys are giving up your time freely to do it. What what's your driver to want to do this? Um, I think personally, from mm. over the last. Three, three years or so we've we've really gone on that journey of you know self-development and just learning from other people's stories and just picking knowledge from them so yeah so we we went on a we've been on like a personal journey over the last few years of like you know really learning about self-development and yeah. listen, listening to other people's inspirational stories who have been successful and I think I've heard you say it before, we, we say it, success leaves clues. Mm. Um, so one thing that I've personally learned is I love helping people. And and this is kind of our way of, of helping people learn, you know, from people like yourself. Brilliant. Yeah. So, nothing about you, Bill? No, pretty much the same thing. I, I had a, about three, three years ago now, I had a bad injury on my knee and, it took about eight months, nine months um, to get back into into just doing anything, not just football. And I took that time to just rethink things and come out of it with a positive mindset on on, on everything. So, and then obviously I've opened a business in like the worst year ever. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's been <laughs> it's been fun uh, <laughs> to to try and uh, help people. Is 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 always a nice little little mm. uh, little thing to end the year on. I think. Mm. Yeah, good on you. I really admire you both. Yeah. What, what, why did you and Jake start start it then? So, me and Jake met in uh, in Norwich a few years ago, and he's from Norwich. And um, I was doing some work with the football club down there uh, with Norwich City, and Jake's one of the patrons. So we got chatting uh, over dinner when we were there, and we got and we got talking about our own experiences. So Jake had sort of started life. Um, He's got a really fascinating backstory himself. He comes from uh, he comes from Norwich. He was badly bullied as a kid at school. Mm. Uh, struggled with his exams, and then found he, uh, he got a break in sort of television, and he sort of made a very successful career for himself. Started on children's television, got onto Formula One. He's now fronting up BT Sports football coverage. Mm. He's got his own TV production company. And I think one of the things that he's understood is that he always felt as an outsider in many ways, there was a secret to being a high performer. Yeah. And he talks about he would be like around the pit lanes in Formula One and he'd be saying to 
the drivers or these billionaire owners like, well, what is it? What's the secret? Mm. And increasingly, the answer was, well, there isn't one. Mm. Now, from my background, I come from a, um, a boxing family. So my dad was a boxing coach in North Manchester. Yeah. And uh, so long before I can remember, my dad had set up the boxing club. Um, and he had guys that he was training blokes going on to become uh, world, uh, going to the Olympic Games as amateurs and being successful there or going to become world boxing champions. Mm. So I was around sort of high performance at a really young age and I could see the hard work, the discipline, the sacrifice, the dedication that yeah. went into it. But I also saw how powerful culture was because like most boxing clubs, they're not always set in the most sort of... Um, salubrious or wealthy areas and that was the case for us but you saw how it wasn't about having facilities or having the best of things it was about having a really powerful culture so I felt I'd been around that and I'd pursued that in my own career um, both in academia and working with lots of teams and we both sort of come to the understanding was there is no secret but there are patterns that you can pick up on yeah so we had this idea of well how do we help people how do we share that and there's almost a purity to how do we share that with people that they can hear these insights that there is no secret, but here's some uh, methods or techniques. Mm-hmm. And then our driver was to do that for free, to give it away. So I'm always conscious when I talk about the podcast and people go, oh, I, what are you selling? You go, not selling anything. We're giving it away for free. So yeah. You can access it on YouTube or you can download it anywhere. And that's been a big driver for us that people can get this stuff and feel that high performance isn't about being a world champion. It's not being about a multimillionaire. It's about, my definition is, it's about using the resources you've got in the moment you're in to do the best that you can. So like to use a daft example, if you put me up against Usain Bolt running 100 metres, Usain Bolt wins every every time. 10 out of 10, he'll beat me. But do I believe that I could learn to be a better sprinter over 100 metres, yeah. I, I'm never going to beat the same ball because our base level of talent is so different. But I believe that I can become a high performer given my own starting position, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's not about trying to tell people that we can all be world champions, but that's not the message. It's about we can all use the resources we've got to do the best we can in the moment we're in. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, well, just just hearing your reason why you started, I think we might have to rethink ours a bit. Yeah, come up with a bit of a better story. But... Why? I don't think you do. I think it's no, powerful no. in its own way. I think I, yeah. I know. I know you're joking to a degree, but yeah, yeah. I think you both don't underestimate the power of authenticity. You know, you've both been on your own journeys. You've all learned lessons, and there's a purity to the fact that you want to share your insights. And yeah, yeah. don't underestimate how powerful that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think a couple of people, a couple of people have actually asked us, you know, um, why are you doing a podcast? You know, can you make money from it? And, and we're just like, uh, I don't know, mate. To be to be fair, that's that's not why, that's not why we're doing it. Um, you know, if if it comes later on down the line, then that's fine. But you know, the the initial reason of us doing it is, like you say, we're, we're authentic and we, we genuinely want to pass these messages on. Delayed gratification is really powerful. One of our interviewees we had recently was uh, the Oscar winner, Matthew McConaughey. Yes. And he was big on this, this idea that don't do it because you have to get an immediate reward. Do it because the reward is just doing it in its own point. 
Yes, he was talking about the Osprey one for the Dallas Buyers Club, and he said he thought it was a really powerful message to give to his kids. So when he eventually won the Oscar, it was like two years after he'd lost all that weight yeah. to play the role of a guy that had, uh, was HIV positive. Yeah. And he said he loved it because he could say to when his son was like, why have you won the Oscar, Dad? He was like, well, do you remember two years ago when I had to deny myself food and go on this really intense diet to lose all that weight? Yeah. Well, this, this trophy today is a reward for what I did two years ago. Mm. And it's almost that idea that you don't have to do it just because the award is immediate, you do it for the pleasure of doing it. And then that delayed gratification can sometimes taste a lot sweeter. Yeah. 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 That, that really hit home for me listening to that, to that uh, part of his yeah, mm. podcast as well. Yeah. It was brilliant. Um, he also spoke about <laughs> there are a section where I think you guys asked him about um, setbacks. And I think you mentioned in quite an eloquent, eloquent way about stepping in shit um, <laughs> on the track. Uh, can you just tell us about that that little section as well? Yeah, so one of his famous phrases is the idea of don't leave crumbs, just do the right thing because you leave crumbs behind, eventually you've got to come back and pick them up. So it's almost about that idea of just do the right thing, not because you've, you're trying to put it on social media or you're trying to, show off what a good bloke you are. Just do it because you're just a good bloke. <laughs> that's that's enough in its own right. And so, yeah, he was speaking about that in um, in uh, in lots of different ways. But that phrase, just don't leave crumbs. So he was saying, like, if he if he robbed me, he said, if I met you and I robbed you and I stole your wallet, and he said, and I might live high on the hog for, you know, with your credit cards and things like that for a few days. But I'm always going to be looking over my shoulder that one day I might meet you. Yeah. yeah. And that's what he means about leaving crumbs. Don't don't shaft somebody just because you can, because you've always got them be looking over your shoulder for yeah. what happens if he ever bumped into me or something like that. And that was his point around it. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Mm, nice. It were uh, some character. I really enjoyed that one. <laughs> I think I heard you laugh, laughing quite uncontrollably a few times as well. <laughs> There's a few bits. Where I, I've drove my wife mad because when we said it, he kept doing that high performance life, and I keep saying <laughs> it to my wife. But yeah. uh, no, he, he, yeah. There's so many of these blogs. A bit like, a bit like yourselves. You know, like where. You buy into authenticity, don't you? You know, people like you for just being you. And I don't think he was trying to play a part or be oh, something. No. Just going, this is who I am. I'm just full of energy and I'm a decent bloke and I'm a good storyteller. And that was what he was doing. Yeah, yeah, definitely was. Yeah, um, right. Yeah, just just focusing on on obviously a bit more of your own journey, uh, Damien. Well, you, you mentioned your um, obviously your childhood. Your, your father was a uh, boxing coach then can you just tell us about a bit more about your childhood and your upbringing if that's alright yeah of course so uh, I'm one of four so uh, like I said before I've got two brothers and a sister mm. and we grew up in North Manchester and like I say uh, there was a powerful message there so so my mum uh, was amazing in terms of looking after us whereas my dad was going off sort of pursuing his dreams so He's got an interesting background. He, he came from, a, he was an illegitimate child born in Catholic post-war Manchester. And the reason I mention that is being an illegitimate child in those days was a proper stigma. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
his driver was, so he never had a dad, but he, he sort of fell into boxing. And boxing's one of these sports where if you've not got anyone looking out for you, you can get yourself badly hurt. And that was the case for him. So he got thrown in and overmatched and ended up sort of getting himself um, quite badly hurt um, through his career. And I think that was a big driver for him. Those two things were big drivers for him to want to set up, set up a boxing club because it was a real passion of his. He wanted to be the father figure that he'd never had which he ended up doing that for a lot of kids that came in there. And I think he was determined that he would do boxing in the right way. So it was about looking after people, making sure that one of his traits of uh, training fighters was that you could defend yourself. Boxing is the art of self-defense. And his was all about it. So fighters that came from his gym were renowned for being great defensive fighters. Mm. Um, so he was doing that long before um, we ever grew up. I mean, there's a nice sort of, um, um, addition to that, that a couple of years ago, Manchester Council named the road after him in oh. the city in honour of wow. the work and the impact that he'd done. And yeah. it wasn't about the boxing, it was about the impact he'd had on people's lives of yeah. teaching them about decency and respect and humility and mm. all those great characteristics. Yeah. Um, so I grew up with like a pretty um, significant figure like that in my life. And there was a rat, and like I say, I was exposed very early on to the kind of um, insights of what it took to go after your goals. If you want to be a high performer in any domain, there's a lot of work, there's a lot of sacrifice, there's a lot of effort and dedication that goes into it. So I never had any illusion that that was what the game was about. Um, and, and when I say the game, I mean life in general. Yeah. And uh, But... Boxing's a great way of teaching you some lessons. So I'll give you an example. I remember being a kid. Uh, I was about 13, 14, and I, and I was boxing. And uh, I ended up taking a liberty with a lad in the ring. So I was I was overmatched. I was better than him. And uh, being 13, I was a bit of a dick. And I sort of threw my weight around a bit and took a liberty. And as I was getting out of the ring after we'd done sparring, my dad came in and said, oh, you've not done a proper workout. You stop in. And he put a young professional in the ring with me. And for the next three minutes, this lad boxed me head off, humiliated me, made me look the dick that I'd made somebody else look. Mm. And uh, it was humiliating. It was embarrassing. It was, it was humbling. And as I got out of the ring, I was sort of nearly crying with tears of frustration. And my dad came over and said, how do you feel? And I couldn't speak. I was that choked up. And he went, that's exactly how you made that lad before you failed. And he went, don't ever let me see you bully anyone or take a liberty again. So there was lots of lessons like that being taught yeah. all, all, all the time in like really quite powerful, visceral ways mm. that as an adult now, you look back and you go, I hate people taking the piss or bullying somebody or taking liberties. But it comes down to how I was made, how I made somebody feel and the lesson that followed on the back of it. Mm. But I was lucky that my mom, like, my mum and dad didn't really have an education uh, to speak of, but they were determined that we, like, there's an old Nelson Mandela quote that, like, education is the engine of all improvement. And so they made sure that we sort of knuckle down and behaved ourselves at school. And I was lucky, I, I got a scholarship to go to a school called Hume Grammar. And, um, I was like a fish out of water. I got there and felt like I didn't belong and I wasn't sure how to cope. And I ended up going there and sort of getting myself into a, a load of lumber. So uh, 
I ended up sort of fighting and sort of getting into all kinds of scrapes and they were going to kick me out. I think they'd sort of exhausted uh, their goodwill because they were paying for me on a scholarship and I think they'd seen that I was being a bit uh, a bit stupid. And I think they'd, I'd sort of worn out their patience levels and I'd been in a fight with a lad one day and they were going to kick me out of the school. And uh, I felt so... I, these are one of these moments when you look back in hindsight, you go, I feel really lucky. Um, there was a teacher at the school, a man called Mr. Council, who um, lived not far away from where I'd grown up. And just as an aside, I was an altar boy at church on a Sunday, right? So I was behaving like this, like a bit of a tear away. But then I'd go to Mass on Sunday and I'd serve on the altar and things like that. And this teacher would come in one day into church and he'd see me on the altar. And I remember looking at him thinking, he can't square the circle there. He's seeing this this tear away, a lad at school that behaves like a dick. And yet he's on the altar here and I could see he came up to me at school the next day and went, what's going on? Like, what are you doing there? So anyway, he, he, I could see he was confused by this sort of um, this inconsistency. And then I got into this trouble where they were going to kick me out. And this Mr. Council came up and he spoke up for me. And uh, he said to the teachers, he said, listen, uh, give him a second chance and I promise I'll take him under my wing. And then he came round and met my mum and dad. And he basically, they all read me the riot acts and said, Mr. Council's put his neck on the line. One more indiscretion from you and you're out nobody there's no second chances and that was like one of those moments in your life where you went i need to knuckle down here and behave myself i might not be the cleverest but i'm going to work hard and that sort of like was a big driver for me in that way so like even now this mr council is in his mid 80s and um i'll go and see him once a year and take him out for a bite to eat because i feel like it's my way of just paying respect for somebody that you know he he showed a belief in me before I had any belief in myself. Do you know what I mean? He thought it was better than what I thought it was, yeah. which was, I think, you need to pay respect to people like that in your life, don't you? Yeah. So, yeah, that was very much my origin story. Yeah. So I sort of pursued it uh, in sort of further education in terms of trying to make sense of a lot of this stuff. And then I've, um, I ended up in my mid-twenties thinking, so I was working as a coach in football and boxing right. um, and I was going to night school at the same time to carry on doing it, to, to try and combine all these interests. And then long story short, I ended up getting a corporate job. I thought I needed to get a proper job. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I did a proper was. job and hated it. Uh, right. But I ended up doing seven years sort of working in the corporate world. <laughs> and I, 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 there was another really significant moment for me that I got this job. I got. I ended up sort of working in um, New York, and then I worked out in South Africa for this company. And I remember sat in their offices one day. I was in Durban, and we were sat in this um, meeting room that looked out over the Indian Ocean. And I remember sat in this room thinking, "I hate this job," and I was surrounded by like really impressive. Yeah, like, everything looked really smart, but I remember thinking, "I'd do anything to be back at home." Yeah. I, I, it, I, I could feel myself just dead inside. Yeah. And we were having this conversation around this boardroom about margarine sales, right? Get this. <laughs> I remember watching all these fellas debate, like looking devastated that margarine sales in the region had dipped. And I remember sat there thinking, I couldn't give a shit. There's not one part of me that cares. <laughs> but I remember as the debate came to me about what I was going to do about it, I remember to my shame, 
pretending to be really upset like everyone else was. And I felt humiliated that night. I went home and I went, you know what? I've got 30 years of being a fraud here. Mm. And I thought, and I'm not prepared to trade it. So I packed in this corporate job and then set up on my own where I thought I'll give it a go up sort of working as a consultant. And that was uh, about 16 years ago now where I've been lucky enough where, you know, I enjoy writing the books. I enjoy working with different sports teams. I enjoy doing the podcast there. Mm. And I enjoy sort of um, going talking about some of the lessons that I've learned along the way. Mm. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, quite a lot to take in. I think just that, just from your from a young age, you've, you've, you've had like the, you know, the um, inspirational sort of people around you. Like you say, you had your dad there and uh, the Mr. Council as well. Um, so it's always good to have them type of characters in, in your life, I think, when you... When I think it's an important point to, to make, Alex. I think that in the interviews we've done on the podcast series, one of my favourite questions is asking about this uh, golden seed moment. And it's Sigmund Freud that said that everybody has got a golden seed moment. Some stage in your life, somebody comes along, whether it's a parent, whether it's a, a teacher, whether it's a sports coach, and they believe in you before you believe in yourself. They encourage you and they sow that seed that hopefully blossoms into something yeah. greater. Yeah. And I think this always intrigues me. Like when I interviewed Kelly Holmes, I asked her and she went, oh, Miss Page. I went, who was that? She went, it was my sports teacher. She said, when I was 14, she said I was a mixed-race girl growing up in a white village. She said I wasn't good at school. I'd been in and out of foster care. She said I was regarded as a bit of a tear-away. And Miss Page, my sports teacher, came along and said, you're a really good runner. I think you've got some real potential there. Yeah. She said it was the first time anyone had ever told me I was good at something. Mm. And the impact of that moment has lasted all her life that – she said, why am I good at it? It's really disciplined, you're dedicated, you, you try your best. And she said she was working in a sweet shop at the time and because somebody had told her that she was disciplined, she'd never heard that term applied to her. Mm. She decided to test the discipline and said she wasn't going to eat a sweet mm. and go see how long she could go without eating the sweets that she was surrounded by in the shop she was working in. Mm. She said, I went for a year without touching a sweet just because somebody had said to me, I think you're really disciplined and that discipline means that you're going to be a good runner. Yeah. So I don't think I'm unique in that way. I think everybody is, I'm sure you guys can remember somebody mm. significant in your life as, yeah. at that age that when think you're a good footballer or think you're a good lad or, mm. you know, you've got the potential to run a coffee shop, you know, like run a business or something like that. Might not have been as explicit as that, but yeah. somebody that believed in you before you did it for yourself. Yeah. Everybody needs it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it just kind of, it, you've got to kind of think about when you're speaking to young people as well it's like you could be that person that could set them off for that young person as well I think just kind of makes sense in that way doesn't it at any moment do you know what I mean like I read a quote this weekend that I thought was lovely that said like never let anyone come into your company and leave not feeling better about themselves mm. it not take a lot does it just to pay somebody a call how are you are you looking well or mm-hmm. you know really like the way you ask that question like I think this is one of the things that I see when I work with a lot of my work is about creating high performing cultures. And I often think about language is really significant. That mm. How often do you hear people talk about banter yeah. and they excuse what's quite toxic yeah. 
behavior is banter. So they're taking the piss out of somebody and making them feel shit about themselves. Mm-hmm. And when they get called out, it's just banter, just having a joke. You go, well, that guy's coming away thinking you're a dick for what you've just said about them. And it's difficult to come back at you because you because then nobody wants to be accused of lacking a sense of humour. But what have you achieved by that? You've left somebody leaving your organisation feeling worse about themselves. Why would you want to do it? Whether that's with an adult or whether it's young people, it just seems just seems that it doesn't add much value to me. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think it, you know if if you if you say one word to someone that makes them feel down. And I think I think you can disregard it as banter because end of the day banter is meant to be humorous and and funny. But if you if you're dragging someone down, it's well that's not, a distinction, isn't it? Isn't it? The, the, but but then that's how my distinction. If you if if it's humor, humor is inclusive. We're all in on the joke. Yeah. Banter relies on excluding someone from the joke. Mm-hmm. So there's the difference right away. So humor is we're all in it together. Banter is no, I'm. I'm in a position of superiority and I'm taking the piss out of you for something. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. Yeah. Um, I just picked up a moment there when you were talking about, you know, you worked in, in the corporate job and, and you were sat there, you know, talking about Marjorie and all whatever. Um, <laughs> I've read a book recently, Dan. I don't know if you've read it, called uh, Lost, Lost Connections. Oh, God. It's, it's all about, like, the, the main causes of, like, depression and anxiety. Oh, yeah, go on. Um, and one of the main causes is is actually you know not not feeling fulfilled in your place of work, right? And and I kind of pinpointed that that moment on your your career there. <laughs> um, so I mean, what yeah, possibly? What I, I mean, yeah. I think I think I think the context behind that was that I'll tell you what. So I I, I agree that I dare not feeling fulfilled. Mm. I think I misjudged the rules of the game. So I went in the corporate world and didn't know what I was doing. And uh, my mum had said to me when I first got the job, she said, uh, what are you going to do when you get found out? And now only a mum could ever ask you that question, but I remember thinking, yeah. <laughs> I went into it thinking, well, I'll work hard and I'll try my best and I'll see how far I get. And every year my boss would phone me up and he'd say, can, I, can you come in tomorrow? And I used to go in, and this sounds daft to anyone that understands the corporate world, because I didn't understand it. I used to think I was going to get sacked the next day. I always thought that was the moment I'd been found out. So I used to go in thinking, right, I'll get my cards and I'll go and leave with a bit of dignity. <laughs> and for seven years, they kept promoting me. So I'd go into these meetings and they say, I've got another opportunity for you. I went to go, like I lived in New York for six months. I went and lived out in South Africa. So they were giving me these amazing opportunities. Mm. But then the Peter principle says, eventually you get promoted to your level of incompetence. right? <laughs> and I love sort of... Uh, getting out there and creating cultures and getting my hands dirty. And I found myself in a job where I was um, basically sat in meetings day after day. Mm-hmm. But what had happened was that I, up until this, this moment where I'd been promoted to my level of incompetence, I thought it was really important what I was doing and I got carried away with it. And I ended up sort of like, one of my big flaws is that if I'm in, I'm all in. Do you know what I mean? If I if I come with you, I'm you're gonna get everything. Yeah. And I sort of did this big turnaround piece on this job I was working on. And for about 18 months I flogged myself. Ended up getting really ill and contracting meningitis, right? I just basically worked myself to a frazzle. My mm. immune system got depleted. And I meningitis, I was just unlucky with the, 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 that was the illness I got. Mm. 
And my girlfriend at the time, she's my wife now, she phoned up my bosses to say I was seriously ill in hospital. Mm. You know, the first question my boss asked was, she said, uh, is it contagious? Do we have to shut the place down? And when she was reassured that I didn't, she went, all right, thanks, and put the phone down. And it took her two days to phone to find out if I, if I was still alive. Oh. And when I found out a bit later, I, I didn't get told this at the time, but when I recovered, I often say that was the moment where I mentally resigned. I just followed through 18 months later. So from that day on, I, at first I was a bit like, I really bitter about it and then when I reflected I thought don't be bitter you, you I've misunderstood the rules of the game not them mm. I thought what I was doing was really significant mm. to them I was just a number as long as I was hitting my targets they were happy yeah. I remember thinking if I'd have died that day with meningitis I reckon at best they might have spent a couple of hours in the morning mourning me by the afternoon they'd have started working out who was going to take over yeah. And I remember thinking, and that isn't a criticism of them. That's the rules of the game that they're yeah. playing. I misunderstood it, not them. Yeah. And that was when I thought, I'm not sure I wouldn't have been in a place where I'm just a number. I want to do something where I can make a positive difference that matters. And that was why I thought, if I set up my own consultancy, you get more control over, yeah. over making sure you're in those environments where that's the case. Mm. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So... Talking about, um, so you've left this job and you're going to your own consultancy. Like, uh, I mean, we're looking at, I'm looking at a list here of people you've interviewed, and 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 then you look at the clubs you've you've worked with. Yeah. And um, what what was the starting point? Like, what was, you know, because it, it's not all just straight away. I mean, at Man United, fan Sir Alex has got me. What was what was the you know the starting point? A bit like it's a good question. I think it's that what goes back to what we spoke about earlier. It's delayed gratification. You know, go and, go and give you time to places where where there's no budget, there's no money, but you can go and learn learn your craft in many ways, make mistakes, get put on your ass, and then eventually you learn how to sort of be able to make an impact better. So you, if you're smart about it, you can go back and revise it and do it. So, for, uh, so. I had a mate of mine, um, he's been in the news a lot recently, uh, Kevin Sinfield. Oh, yeah. You know, the rugby league lad. So I knew yeah. Kevin anyway. And uh, Kevin had sort of said to me, oh, I'd like you to, he'd introduced me to uh, his coach at the time, um, at Leeds Rhinos, a guy called Tony Smith. Mm. And uh, through Kevin, we'd sort of met, and I got me and Tony got on really well. And I just used to go meet him for a pint. Mm. Once a month, we just used to sit, and it was just as friends, we just used to sit at the pub and chat. And uh, this was while I was still working in the corporate world. Mm. And he'd sort of throw ideas at me, I'd throw ideas at him, and we'd just bounce it around and chat. And then when I left, Tony had said to me, do you fancy coming in and helping out? But they had no budget. So I was going to Leeds Rhinos, and then Tony got the England rugby league job, so I went in and supported him there. Mm. So, but for 18 months prior to that, I was just meeting him as a friend so we had that sort of relationship of trust and we liked each other um so it was stuff like that really it was about never doing it because i thought i was going to get paid for doing it yeah. it was about doing it because like i wrote my first book when i was still in the corporate world mm-hmm. um and i never wrote the book to be published i wrote it because i wanted to give it as a gift to one of the jobs i was doing was i was running uh, three factories just outside of Liverpool where we're trying to create a high-performing culture. 
I wrote a book for the blokes in the factory and self-published it. I paid for it myself and gave it to them. And it got quite a lot of interest in the sort of trade press afterwards. So people, uh, and then I got approached by a publisher to buy the book off me. But I never wrote the book because I thought I was going to write a book to put it on sale. I wrote it because I just loved the topic and was interested in exploring it. Mm. So I think it's an important point that I never did it to get paid for it. I never did it because I thought I wouldn't get to a certain position. I did it just because I loved doing it. And then I was lucky enough on the way that people are kind enough to say, oh, I really enjoyed that. Or, you know, can you come and help us? But that you're right. That was never the starting position. Would you say, would you say, because if you look at uh, like high performance level teams, so for instance, you use Man United, would you say you were like one of the, the first to be doing that at the time? So like you went in at Leeds Rhinos and obviously the England rugby team. Like, I uh, yeah, so I, I'm not a sports psychologist, so that's an important thing to make. So my background is in organisational psychology. So I, um, I think that's still rare because I think it's about um, understanding cultures rather than just specifically working with players that might have, uh, say, confidence issues or things like that, some of the more traditional areas of sports psychology. Um, so... The answer is, I, I don't know. I think sports psychology is a lot more prolific within sort of elite environments now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think my role is more um, looking at the culture and the environment and creating it. I think sports psychology is really valuable on an individual basis. I think organisational psychology is better for sort of team environments and things like that. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Um, so, yeah, obviously, yeah, let, let's, let's have a bit of a chat about um, getting hired by Sir Alex Ferguson, that, that must have been a big moment for you. Um, can you just tell us about the process of that and how, how that came about? Well, I mean, I'd, I'd never, so just to uh, clarify it, that I never worked there in in the capacity of organisational psychologist for Alex Ferguson. I, yeah. I got to meet him a few times when I was researching uh, right. some of the books so right. um yeah I, I wasn't employed by him okay uh, right. to do the nature of this it, it was more around when i was researching some of the topics um he was very kind and generous to sort of meet and share some of his insights but yeah. my my insight of him is he was a guy that sort of understood a lot of this intuitively mm-hmm. and i think a lot of that you know he'd had such a long career he'd learned so many of these principles that he was applying anyway and my job was to try and make sense of some of the principles that he was doing. So I did write a book about him called How to Think Like Alex Ferguson, yeah. where I went and interviewed a wide range of people that had, that had worked for him. And I was being, and I was then trying to understand the principles he'd done and yeah. put the theory behind it. So that was more my uh, my interaction yeah. with him. Yeah, yeah. So what 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 would you say are some of the main sort of lessons you learned from your time with Alex, Sir Alex? Uh, um, I think, I mean, there were so many of them, but I think there's a couple that are really valuable for people that often get overlooked. Mm. One, I think uh, he managed upwards really well. So he kept people that were in the decision-making process completely updated with what he was working on and things like that. And I think that bought him time. Mm. I think the second thing was he thought long-term. He, pl- he, he had a phrase that we play for today, but we plan for tomorrow. And it was always that idea that he was making long-term decisions as well as short-term. 
So, for example, when he gets rid of the likes of Beckham, Van Nistelrooy, Stan, it was because he always felt he had somebody that in four years' time was in a position to replace them, so you need to give them the opportunity. Mm. Now, that's different from a lot of managers because they often thinking, well, what do I need to do for today? So there's not always that long term. And then the third thing is he surrounded himself with people that plugged the gaps that he did that he couldn't do. Mm. So you think about in his 26 years, he had nine different assistant coaches at United. Mm. If you think of his next nearest equivalent, Arsene Wenger had one, Pat Rice in his first 20 years. And that's not criticism of Pat Rice, but I think what that tells you about Ferguson was he was bringing in. Brian Kidd's work with young coaches. He brought in Steve McLaren that was seen as the best innovative coach in Britain at the time. Then he brought in Carlos Quieras that had a European pedigree that he didn't have. So I think he was constantly surrounding himself with people that challenged him. So he wasn't arrogant enough to think he had all the answers, but he was happy to surround himself with people that did. Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Um so uh, another one of the books that you uh, have written, Damien, it's called the the five the five steps to a um, winning mindset. Yeah. Winning mindset. Sorry, yeah. Can you just explain a bit about that? Because I've read that one myself, and it, it were a fantastic read. Mate. I'll I'll tell you that. Thanks, mate. Um, so the idea behind that was that I wanted to go around and in, uh, I got lucky and spent three years travelling the world interviewing elite sports coaches just looking at what did they do that made them so successful. And what I found was this idea of steps is that I I found it wasn't the sport, it was how they did it that was most interesting. Mm. And I thought there was five things that were consistently there. So mm. when I wrote the book, I wanted it to be like a bit of a shopping list in people's head. So when you're working with a team, whether it's a classroom full of kids, whether it's people coming in your coffee shop, whether it's um, working in sport, if you're not getting the results you want, the question is, what do I need to do? And the steps is the acronym. Mm. So there's five things that I saw happening. The first one was they kept things really simple. Yeah. The second thing was they didn't give you the answers. They made you think for yourself. Mm-hmm. The third one was they were emotionally intelligent. And what I mean by that is that, like, don't underestimate the power of kindness, decency, understanding. Mm. The fourth one was they kept their language really practical. So they didn't use jargon or use in-house terminology. They made the language really accessible. And then the fifth one was they were brilliant storytellers and they were the consistent traits that all these coaches had. Mm-hmm. And what, um, So the idea behind the book was to share some of these insights and say, look, this is where it's done here or this is done here. Because mm-hmm. there's an important distinction that although I went looking in sport, one of the things I was keen to emphasise is it wasn't about sport, it was about people. It just occasionally works in that industry. Yeah, yeah. I think w- w- with all like this, the stuff you've written about it, it's kind of it's not like like say it's it's directed at sport slightly, but it goes in a much bigger scale, doesn't it? You can use it across anything yeah, well, in life. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, but I think that's the point to make that it's about that I, that I I don't just work in sport; I work with people but they might work in different industries. So we interviewed recently uh, Kelly Jones from the Stereophonics on the podcast. Mm-hmm. So he's not a sports person. He's a person that just works in the music industry. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? But the insights that he's had about coming from the, like this small town in South Wales to becoming one of the biggest rock bands in the world, mm-hmm. well, there's plenty of things you can learn there about dedication, hard work, learning. Yeah. 
surrounding yourself with good people that's equally applicable to talking to Matthew McConaughey that's done the same principles in Hollywood that then is equally applicable to, uh, in a couple of weeks, we've got a guy called Sia Colosi coming on that was the Springboks captain uh, last year winning the Rugby World Cup. There's a pattern to how a lot of these people do, regardless of the industry they're in. Yeah. Brilliant, man. Yeah. You know that? Yeah, it's... it's, I don't... So Alex talks a lot about reading uh, your books and stuff like that, and I'm not a reader. I just can't. I'm I'm can't sit still for so long. Like I'm, I'm always not <laughs> doing something. Like so, you know, if I if I can if I can listen to it, then I'll listen to it. Um, I think it's I've drink too much coffee. I think that's what it is. <laughs> I um, just always don't move. Like I I can't sit still. Um, but I wanna I wanna go back to uh, education now. I've got two young children and you've already spoke about your children. Is there anything that you think that we could do education-wise that we have in our system now? You'd go, right, I think we could change that. Because I think a lot of kids these days are being bullied and it's not just, you know, uh, in school, it's online as well. Um, and I just think mind the mindset towards school sometimes can be a bit like, I don't want to go. I've got an upset stomach. I don't want to go. You know what I mean? Yeah. Is there anything that you think we can change? or help with anything there's like a lovely that. question that I'd, I'd, I'd encourage you to maybe think about um, and it had a big impact to me when I first came across it there's a guy called Howard Gardner an educational psychologist that has a great line he says don't ask your kids how clever are you instead yeah, start asking them how are you clever because his point is all kids are clever we're just clever in different ways some kids are physically gifted some are verbally gifted some are musically gifted some are socially gifted but if we only ever assume that intelligence is about how good they are at maps or at English, how many kids leave school thinking they're fake? Mm. When the reality is they were clever, just not necessarily in that way. Mm. And I think just getting kids to recognise, a bit that golden seed, what, what you're gifted at, what makes you special, what makes you a unique person yeah. is really powerful. Mm. Uh, and then I think... I'm no expert on this. I've got two children myself, but I'm clear about non-negotiable behaviours. We've got three mm. that we talk about being kind, caring and sharing. Mm. Yeah. So when they might come and tell us something, go, is that kind? You know, yeah, okay, good. Is it caring? Yeah. Are you sharing that? Yeah. Well, if it is, do it. But if it contra- contravenes that, maybe take a moment to think about whether you want to do it or not. Yeah. I think the stuff around... We've had a social media frightens me for the kids because I'm in the generation where I I don't understand it. I said at the start, I don't get a lot of this stuff, but um, I I felt like I I had to be on social media for the nature of the work I do. And I've changed that stance over the last 12 months where I've chose to remove myself from a lot of it. Partly because my son turned 11 and we'd promised him when he started at big school we could get a phone. And it's like the old saying, if you want your kids to learn to love reading, they've got to see you read. If you want your kids to love exercise, they've got to see you doing it. Yeah. I can't be on social media and tell them my son, I don't want him on it when yeah. he gets a phone. So far, yeah. I've got to role model these behaviours and come off it and say to me, you don't need this shit. It's not healthy for you. It's no. not healthy for adults, but mm. even less so for an 11-year-old boy yeah. trying to access some of this stuff. Mm. You know, and again, but then... Not just doing it because it's a gimmick. The say to him, is it kind, caring and sharing? Well, a lot of it isn't. 
So why would you do it? And and then again, it's a hard one with kids, but trying to get them to see that deferred gratification, but also the deferred consequences. Mm. Some of the stuff you're posting now might come back and bite on the arse in. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? If you say something nasty about somebody, yeah, that like you make a, a comment that amongst you and your mates might be considered humorous, put it in black and white. That humor doesn't always translate. You can be labeled as a homophobe or a sexist or a racist, yeah. you know, or any other kind of ism mm. by failing to appreciate this. Mm. Yeah. Um, so just going a bit back to the the, the podcast, Damien. Um, so you've obviously spoke to some pretty amazing people. Uh, um, what, what would you say is been probably your, your favourite interview so far and maybe what, what kind of lessons can you pass on to us from, from that person? Yeah, I mean, that's a difficult one because I, I, I've enjoyed all of them. I might not always have liked them, but I've always I've enjoyed them. So mm-hmm. there's a distinction there. But I think anyone that's given the time up uh, to chat with you, you should be prepared to learn from. We won't ask you to name that person, by, them people, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you three for different reasons, though. Um, the the one that I felt really, um, really delighted about was we interviewed Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And mm-hmm. I've been lucky enough, I've known Ole for quite a while, and I called in a favour with him to ask him to come and chat, and he was good enough to do it. Mm-hmm. So there was a bit there when we interviewed him that I felt really really quite moved that the manager of Manchester United had, had, had agreed to help me out. So from a very personal point of view, that was uh, that was a really phenomenal. Uh, Matthew McConaughey, because how often do you get to speak to an Oscar-winning actor? So just for like the star power alone, I yeah. found it exciting. Yeah. And then Johnny Wilkinson was a really powerful one because I think he came in and really challenged a lot of preconceptions. Yeah. about uh, it describes surviving his career, enduring it as opposed to enjoying it. And yeah. I think that that really challenges a lot of perception. So I'd say those three for very different reasons, but they all, yeah. uh, they stand out in my head. Yeah, mm-hmm. brilliant, mate. Yeah, that Johnny Wilkinson one, I, I, list, I listened to that myself and I was just like, when you know, when it finished, I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> That it goes deep. It? it goes deep. Yeah, yeah, that was our reaction. But I think it took real. I, I, I remember sat there at the time thinking, I really admire your courage to do this. Yeah. Because when we finished the interview, he said to us, he said, please don't edit this to make me look a dick. Mm-hmm. But he trusted us enough to share it before making that request. Yeah. I remember thinking, you know, like he didn't want to talk about his career in detail he wanted to know what the lessons he'd learned from it and I remember sat there thinking I really admire you that you're trying to shift the conversation yeah. around mental health yeah. and you know to, I don't underestimate that that takes balls to do what he did mm. yeah definitely yeah man. yeah just just to finish on then mate just uh, if you had the power to invite anyone into this interview with us uh, right now who would you choose and why Eric Cantona Eric Cantona, right? Yeah. Get him in. Why would you choose him? Uh, phenomenal. So I'm the generation that grew up when Cantona arrived. So I loved his swagger and I love what he did in terms of yeah. the United fan. So seeing him win the league with him at the helm was great. But more importantly than that, I think it's the it's the collateral impact he had that I think he shaped the 
10, 15 years that followed yeah. after mm-hmm. he'd retired. I think he was a cultural architect yeah, yeah. in uh, the most powerful way possible. And he did it on his terms. You know what yeah. I mean? Walking yeah. out at 30 years of age, just leave him wanting more. Yeah. Uh, he was a genius in so many ways. Yeah, that would be a good one. Yeah, yeah. fair play. Right, mate, well, thank you for your time. It's been amazing to chat with you, Damien. Thanks for your time. No, no, it's been a pleasure. I've loved it. Thank you for having me along. Yeah, and keep keep doing what you're doing with the podcast and, and everything else, mate. And uh, yeah, keep yeah. in touch. Thank you. Chat yeah. to yourself. Thanks, mate. Thanks, lads. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to another inspiring self-made story. And we hope you enjoyed the show. We would be very grateful if you could kindly leave us a review, as it will help us impact a wider audience. You can do this on iTunes, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you want to reach out on the socials, find us across all platforms using at the Self Made Minds Podcast. See you next time and happy success making.